Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosella. Glad to have you here. Welcome to 2024. Hard to believe that, huh? Patrick Richardson is my guest today. I've talked to him before. This is the second time on the show. He was with me back in episode 80, which we recorded back in 2021. And at the time, Patrick was known as the laundry evangelist, sometimes the laundry guy. We talked at an exciting time in his life uh, back in 2021. He was launching a new show called The Laundry Guy on Discovery Plus and was also airing sometimes on HGTV. And he had a new book out called Laundry Love, which was all about the right way to do laundry, which I know sounds kind of funny, but you'll hear me say in this interview today, like I learned so much from Patrick. It's so much that I didn't expect to learn. Like I really thought that when people would give direction on the right way to do laundry, it would probably involve a lot of chemicals and things that I just didn't want in my water, in my house, on my clothing. Turns out Patrick's approach was the complete opposite. It's all about using natural things, vodka, soap flakes, things like that to get your clothes clean, to care for them, to wash your dry clean only stuff at home, save you money, save the planet. All sorts of great stuff. So anyways, that was that was episode 80. That was back in 2021. Patrick now has a new book out. And it's along the same lines, except it covers the entire house. His new book is called House Love. I read it. I loved it. Of course, I learned a lot from it. And a big part of what House Love is about is making do with less. Is saying, how can I have less chemicals in my house? What are the bare minimums that I need to buy to keep my house clean. It turns out you don't have to buy anything from the big major brands. He doesn't advocate the use of, you know, I don't know, Clorox or whatever. It's all vinegar. 90% of the stuff he talks about in the book, it's vinegar and water. And I've been getting fed now these Instagram uh, videos and stuff where people are making infused vinegars. I'm going to try using the branches for my Christmas tree and infusing a vinegar to give it a nice, you know, Christmas tree scent year round. But you can use lemon peels, you can use thyme. And Patrick talks in the book about the different kind of antibacterial properties that some of those natural things can have. So there are ways to have a clean house without having to kill the planet. And I mean, if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you know that simplicity has really become my thing really trying to detach from the consumer systems that are out there, the the advertising and marketing that say we need to spend, spend, buy, 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 consume. I've been turning against that in my life. I went an entire year last year without buying any new clothes. Well, I did buy one new shirt, but it was on clearance at an outlet. And uh, I bought, I think, two or three used shirts maybe in a whole year. But three articles, four articles of clothing in a year, almost all of them used, talked about that in my newsletter, and uh, have been happy to consume less. I talked to Sarah Suzanka on this show about simplifying life, talked to Kim John Payne about simplifying parenting. This has been kind of a thread for me. So when I read Patrick's new book, House Love, I was reminded again what I loved about Laundry Love, what I loved about Patrick, and just the, the practicality that he brings to the home. So I hope you'll check out House Love. I hope you'll learn something from it too. And I hope if this conversation interests you and you want to dig deeper into sustainability and, you know, living a more simple life, I talk about a lot of these things in my newsletter twice a week. Go to heathrasella.com slash newsletter. You can get on the list there to get uh, newsletters in your inbox. If you want to upgrade to a paying membership, 
You will not only be helping support this podcast and my newsletter, but you will also receive early episodes of the podcast before anybody else. So if you're a paying member, hello. How are you? You're listening before everybody else. How cool is that? Pain members, they're what make this thing happen. I love it. HeathRosala.com slash newsletter. All right, let's get into it. Let's talk about houses and cleaning and sustainability. Here it is, my conversation with Patrick Richardson. So last time we spoke, it was kind of the beginning of a couple of new chapters for you. I'm just curious, before we dive into the new book, like what have the last two years been like for you since we last talked? The last two years have been sort of incredible. You know, who knew that that many people love laundry, first and foremost? <laughs> they, you know, sort of came out of the closet, so to speak. Like yeah. everybody loved laundry. You know, Kelly Ripa loves laundry. Who knew? Uh, so that was kind of amazing. So it was, re- it was super fun. You know, people loved Laundry Love, which was incredible. Yeah. They liked Laundry Guy, but I guess not enough people did, but that's okay. But it's been super fun. You know, I've just been, I mean, I've been traveling and, you know, spreading the laundry gospel and just, I mean, just having so much fun. Yeah. The biggest thing that's happened between then and now is, you know, I just get to talk to more people about what I love doing, you know, which I guess is what prompted the second book. Yeah. I mean, I I fell in love with Laundry Love as well, and I was amazed just how I had been doing laundry wrong for so many years. And not that like it was necessarily wrong, wrong, but like in reading your book, it opened my eyes to a different way of doing it, I guess I'll say. And it's been something that I've stuck with now for two years. I use the soap flakes now. I use the express cycle and it has made the chore much easier. It's made it go quicker. It's made my clothes last longer. Like there have just been so many benefits and it was something that, that I don't know that I would have expected, you know, like who knew that you could do your laundry a different way <laughs> and it, it made such a change in my life. So I'm, I'm appreciative for that. Certainly. I, I'm glad. And I'm glad, and you know, I, I never like to say you did laundry wrong. You were doing it based on the technology that the person who taught you had. Yeah. It's one of those things, you know, like we're literally in two different parts of the country communicating and seeing each other and talking. Yeah. And that's technology that exists now. Right. You know, if you told the person who used a ringer washer that this would be the future, they wouldn't have believed it. So it's just, you know, it's just sort of updating technology and, you know, doing it. But I'm glad that you like it. I like it too. And I'm going to, I'm going to go back to the previous question. The one other thing that has happened to me since Laundry Love, I was already interested in sustainability mm-hmm. and already interested in, you know, taking care of the environment. But I've learned so much more because so many people have taught me so many things. Yeah. And so I'm much more focused on sustainability now, even than I was with Laundry Love. So yeah. that's the second part of that answer. For sure. And it's interesting, like, because I see that progression in House Love as well. And like you talk about the technology uh, relative to laundry, we were just talking about just, you know, we're doing it now because we have different technology, front loader washing machines and things. But in both books, there's kind of a back to basics idea of things that like when I go into a Target or something and there's, I don't know, 10 aisles of different cleaners, like on the laundry side, you can distill all those different detergents and fabric softeners and things down to laundry soap. And on the house cleaning side, you can take the bathroom cleaner and the wood cleaner. Like you talk about just vinegar and water and how that, I mean, I think 90% of the things that you clean in house love, 
you're using that solution. And it's like, it's, it's brilliant, you know? Yeah. It's, I guess it is very back to basics. I, you know, I think about that, you know, like the Victorians, you know, the Victorians were a very ornate people. Sure. You know, they loved very ornate things and, you know, they, all they basically had was soap and, you know, vinegar. Yeah. And they cleaned those very sort of ornate clothes, the ornate house, you know, they used soap and water and vinegar to kind of clean everything. Yeah. So it is kind of back to basics. It's sort of funny how back to basics has become super modern. It's kind of like, you know, you could say you're using solar and wind technology when really what you're doing is hanging your clothes on the clothesline. Right. But I love that. You know, I love that simple approach. And it's just, I think it's some, maybe it's reminding people that that still works. Yeah. In a funny way. I'm curious for you, like growing up in Kentucky and growing up, you know, you're very close to your grandmother and things. And likewise, I grew up, you know, five houses from my grandma. She was down the street from me and was a depression baby and World War II baby, you know, all of it. She grew grew up during that time when, when times were rough and you had to be uh, very conservative with money, I guess, and very thoughtful about how you did things. How much of the way that you grew up has influenced sort of where you are now and just kind of this, yeah, the back to basics thing and kind of, it's not necessarily anti-consumption, but it, it kind of is too. Like it's thoughtful consumption, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like how much of that do you think comes out of just the way you were raised and who you were raised by? I think that's a huge part of it. I mean, my granny was also a depression baby and, and she grew up very poor. So yeah. not only, you know, do we have the depression there, but you know, she was poor to begin with. I think that's a huge part. You know, I mean, she was very successful in her own life. I mean, she had a career, you know, which was kind of not overly common. And, you know, my granddad was a pilot on a barge. So he was gone for 30 days, home for 30 days. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, she was very independent. She was a very independent woman. Yeah. But I think she was very, I think she was very thoughtful in the way that she spent money. I mean, she certainly lavished it on me, but I think... (laughs) she was conservative in other ways. And I think that was a big part of it. And, you know, that's just sort of how I grew up. I mean, I didn't realize that there was a different way, you know, and then it's sort of funny. I get to college and I'm studying apparel and textiles and it was kind of a step ahead because a lot of my fellow students, you know, weren't comfortable washing things and dealing with things that, you know, to me just seemed completely normal. Yeah. Or like mending. I remember I took a sewing class and the professor was showing us how to sew on a button. And I thought, <laughs> who on earth doesn't know how to sew on a button? In college. I mean, and to be in apparel and textile. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. this is not the college of engineering people. <laughs> right. You know, and they didn't know how to sew on a button. That was crazy. So there were those sorts of things. But then I also think, you know, this is starting to show my middle age. I also think that I've started to develop an appreciation for those ways. Like, I don't know that I would have written Laundry Love when I was in my early 30s. Sure. You know, because in my early 30s, even though I was doing laundry that way, I don't know that I would have been so out and proud about using sort of Appalachian methods. Yeah. You know, and I think I've developed an appreciation for how I grew up, where I grew up. Yeah. And the way that I grew up, and I, I kind of want to share it. So I was very lucky. I mean, I grew up with a very sort of privileged childhood, and I and I know that. But by the same token, you know, I grew up surrounded by beautiful things, and 
you know, my dad was a builder, so he could fix a lot of things. And my mom was a very fastidious homemaker. But, you know, she still used these sort of, they both still use their sort of traditional values. And I think that's where house love kind of came from. Yeah. You know, it came from me embracing my roots in a weird way. Yeah, for sure. There's an interesting piece, too. You talk about your father being a builder. And in the book, you talk about him building some very nice high-end homes and being able to tour those as a young boy and kind of look around and, and see some of these things. But I feel like, at least in my experience, the builders that I've known, like even the people that are doing really high-end work and really custom and beautiful homes, there's still a frugality to them that like even if the clients, I guess, want the most opulence showing, a lot of what the builders are doing behind the scenes is still very frugal or very smart or just resource conservative, I guess, too. You know, they're, they're very thoughtful often, I find builders, even the guys that are doing the highest of the high end, they're not as wasteful as you might expect for doing, you know, a big mansion, right. I guess. Was that your experience kind of with your dad as well? Um, but there was 100%. I mean, they know the best way to do something. That's the thing. Right. Builders know where to spend the money and where to pull the money back. Yeah. You know, obviously they're doing it. To, they're also doing it to make a living. So, you know, the more frugal they are, the more money they make, which is the nice <laughs> sure. part of it. But, you know, they know where to push and where to pull. You know, in the book, I talk about my dad and it's such a funny little example. But my dad was the first person I ever knew that would wire every room of the house for a phone jack and every room of the house then for cable TV. I mean, yeah. now, you know, there would be other things. But at the time, that was kind of a new thing. But he would always do it because, you know, he said it costs a very small amount of money while the walls are open. Yeah. And it's very expensive to go back and do it later. Yeah. And he knew that, you know, he was he had foresight, right? He knew that down the road, all the kids are going to want TVs in their bedroom or, you know, whatever it happens to be. And so that's an example of using money wisely. It cost a little more, but, you know, the result was so great. And I think that's what builders see. They see, you know, if we go ahead and put a utility sink in the laundry room now, in two years when they want one, we're already ready to go. Or, yeah. you know, if we put a central vac in, you know, that was another thing that was big in the 70s. I remember my dad installed central vacs everywhere. Sure. You know, at the time, it seemed sort of lavish, but it turned out to be kind of a smart decision. And I think that's what builders... No. And, you know, if I was building a new house now and I had a builder that I trusted, you know, I would talk to them like, OK, what what am I going to install? Yeah. You know, where am I going to? Because they really do know kind of what's best. You know, they know the, the best sort of they've installed everything. So they know, you know, the best faucets and the best, you know, tankless hot water heater and the best heat pump and whatever. Yeah. You know, because they've done it. Yeah. And I think that's, you know what I kind of learned from him. For sure. And it's interesting, like, I think what you're talking about there is just good design, which translates to the house, but it translates to clothing or accessories. I mean, I just think of like, I spent a good chunk of money for a backpack a few years ago, you know, just a laptop bag that I could take through the airport and whatever. And I'm amazed, like, for one, it's probably five or six years old now. And it looks as good as the day I bought it. Like it doesn't, it hasn't aged at all in that time. But it's also just, it's so thoughtfully designed in terms of like where pockets are. There's one that's lined to put a wet umbrella in so the rest of your bag doesn't get wet. There's a water bottle pocket, you know, just like somebody really put some thought into every little aspect of that. 
And often, like if a designer is not given that leeway or the person making it isn't given that leeway to trust their instinct, to trust their gut, like you end up with something that's just not as thoughtful. It's mass produced and it's not, you know, you pay less for it up front, but it's not going to last as long or it's just not going to to feel the same way. Like I feel cared for when I use that bag, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. I mean, the person who made that bag, you know, or the person who designs that coat or the person who builds that house, they anticipated what you needed and they knew what you needed before you did. Yeah. And that's great design, you know, right. in a nutshell. And you're right. I mean, you pay, you might pay a tiny bit more for that up front, but the reality is you saved money in the long run because you just said the bag is six years old and it's still great. Yeah. Which means it's got at least another six years. Sure. Right. It probably has 20. Yeah. <laughs> but it has at least six. So, you know, in the long run, you're going to save money because you're not replacing it. Right. And I think, uh, you know, kind of all of that, too, goes to this idea that you hit at in House Love, which is this notion that, like, a house should be yours. It should be comfortable. Like, I feel like there's a lot of focus sometimes on what Instagram wants, what Pinterest wants, what design magazines want. And people try to live up to that standard rather than actually think about like what makes them happy, what makes them comfortable. And I feel like so much of your book is just disabusing people of that and saying like, hey, whatever you like, go for it. Let the house be a, re a reflection of yourself. I hope so. I hope that that happens. I mean, one thing we say in the book is, you know, when you see the magazine, you see it like st you see the picture stage perfection. I want to see the coffee cup on the table and the newspaper <laughs> on the floor. Yeah. Because that's how you live in it. But I think that is, if anybody takes anything from house love other than like tips on how to clean their house, I hope they take the permission to make their house their house. And, you know, I'm obviously not going to knock HGTV, but, you know, you see a lot of houses that sort of, I don't want to say they're trendy, but they're now, you yeah. know, they're what people want now. They're open concept, they're, you know, farmhouse, they're American farmhouse, they're white, they're bright, those sorts of things. And that's great if you love that look, because it's really a great look, actually. I mean, it's a sure. very functional, easy look. But if it's not your look, that doesn't mean that your look is bad. Yeah. You know, or it doesn't mean that you can't make modifications. I mean, I think the the biggest thing I can think of here is my house isn't that large because it was built in the 1880s and houses just weren't as big then. And it has a pretty significant dining room. Yeah. Ross and I have used our dining room table maybe three times in the 18 years we've lived together. <laughs> yeah. You know, so to give up an entire room for that, it's just insane. Right. So our dining room, our living room opens onto our dining room and there's like pocket doors between them. And I'm just immediately, when we walked in the house the very first time, I said, we're going to turn this room into a den. Yeah. So we're basically going to have a living room and a den because... You know, if I had the houses my dad built, you know, a house that was 15,000 square feet, I'd probably be willing to give up a room for, you know, Christmas Eve or yeah. for Thanksgiving. Yeah. But when your house is, you know, 1,700 square feet and chopped up with all these sets of stairs because I live in a brownstone. So, you know, it's very vertical. Yeah. I can't give up that space. So I made it into a den and. When people come over, even our neighbors, because it's a brownstone, so, you know, we all have the same size. 
even our neighbors are always like, oh, this is our dining room. And I'm like, yep, probably is. Yeah. You know, but it just, it makes no sense to me, like to use that. And, you know, and that was just giving myself permission. And even I thought it was a little weird when I did it, but it was giving myself permission to say, this is my house, yeah. you know, and I can turn my dining room into a den if that's what I want. And, you know, it's funny because in 2020, not going to say anymore because I don't want to jinx anything happening again, <laughs> but, you know, lots of people realized that their dining room needed another purpose. Yeah. So I think that it's funny because isn't it funny that that's become modern, you know, to use your house again. Right. Well, it's interesting too, kind of the layout of the book. You go room by room and they are kind of very discrete chapters in terms of, you know, the bedroom, the dining room, the kitchen, whatever. But even within those, you do talk about kind of the flexibility of space and this notion that like it doesn't, ha as you say, it doesn't have to be the dining room, but like the way that it becomes, if you have a dining table in there, the home office or the kids playroom or the craft room or, you know, whatever it is, there's a lot of really smart ways to kind of make those rooms change throughout the day. Sometimes just hiding storage <laughs> within things or, you know, being able to, to have things organized in a basket and move that basket out of the way. Like even just the organization of the book kind of implies a formality to the spaces that once you dig into the text isn't really there and, and you don't advocate for, which I really liked. I mean, every room in your house should be like a little black dress. Yeah. You should be able to put a jacket on it and go to work and put pearls on it and wear it to a cocktail party. Yeah. You know, and I love it when your house works like that, but I, I don't think people need the idea. I think people have the idea that, you know, I could make my living room into an office or I could make my, you know, dining room into a playroom. In a funny way, I almost think you need the permission. Mm. You know, you need somebody to help you do that. Yeah. Like you've used the dining room as your home. I hear people all the time who say, oh, my dining room's where all the mail collects, <laughs> which or my dining room table's where all the mail collects. Yeah. And they like apologize for that. And I'm like, there's no need to apologize for that. At least you're using it. Yeah. I mean, and it's in a weird way, it's kind of a great place for the mail to collect because you have a chair right there and you can just sit down and go through it. I think people need that permission to say, well, it's okay. Good for yeah. you. I'm glad you use it. You know, it was a very expensive piece of furniture. And other than, you know, holding that fake flower arrangement, <laughs> it doesn't really do much. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of great that that's where the mail collects or that's where you, you know, fold the laundry or, you know, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something too, that we often focus on the intended use for something, whether it's, you know, fancy plates for, you know, a holiday dinner or whatever it is, or, you know, a nice dining table that is, is supposed to be for a formal dinner, even though you never use it for that. I, I do think part of the permission that you give in the book too is to make these things part of your daily life. I mean, you talk about like using antique punch bowls to soak clothes in or different things. Like it doesn't have like, uh, there, it's not doing you any good sitting behind a, a cabinet door and getting used maybe once a year, maybe once every five years. Like the stuff you have, you should be using. And, and like, don't be afraid. Like if a plate breaks, at least you used it, I guess, right? Right. You know, that goes back to laundry love. When I say that, you know, I'll put on my tuxedo jacket to, with a t-shirt to go to the grocery store. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can't be afraid to use your clothes, but you can't be afraid to use your house. And, you know, there again, I'm going to use technology because I probably would have been more fearful of using the fancy antique plates in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, I was a kid then, but, you know, now because of eBay. Yeah. Because the thing is, if you break one, you can get another one. Totally. You know, the resources just aren't as finite as we thought. So, 
you know, pull out the fancy dishes or, you know, use the punch bowl as I think using the punch bowl to sew clothes in. If people only ever remember me for one thing, <laughs> I think that sums up my whole life. You know, the idea that you do laundry and something as fancy as the punch bowl, that that's how I want to be remembered. I may see if I can get that as an epitaph. <laughs> That'll be right on the tombstone. That's great. Um, on the kind of permission front too, like it's interesting just thinking back on, you know, I, I spent 15 years at this old house starting in 2005 and went in probably close to a thousand houses across the country in, in my 15 years there. I remember early on, there were a lot more quirky houses that I went in. I mean, like you talk about displaying hot sauces. Like I remember there was a guy, I think he was in the military or something. Like he traveled around a lot and had just collected hot sauce everywhere he went. And he literally had a thousand bottles maybe like surrounding his, his kitchen cabinets. And that was 2007 maybe when I saw that. And then I remember like the last two or three years that I was there, which would have been, you know, five, six years ago now, starting to feel this trend of like going into houses and they all felt the same and and none of them felt lived in, in a way, if that makes sense. Like it was just, it felt like, like home goods or TJ Maxx and it just felt generic, I guess. And I'm curious just if you've seen that trend as well of kind of the generification <laughs> of our houses and like, I, I don't know, is that social media? Is that like that that notion of permission? Where did that come from that like it's not OK to have a thousand hot sauce bottles if you want them? Yes, I totally noticed that trend all the time. Yeah. You know, it it's sort of even crept into all the shelter magazines. Like, I love shelter magazines. I've sure. always, you know, loved them. And I dearly love this old house, actually. Um, it's one of my favorite. It's still one of my favorite TV shows. I'm not going to lie. There was a house last season in the Ipswich, Massachusetts, and I was so excited because, you know, it was 1720. I just, anyway, but I think that with social media, I mean, I think social media was a huge part of it. People started saying, this is good and this is bad. Mm. You know, we've gotten to a place where everything is black and white. It's like, this is good. This is bad. And I think that's when everything becomes the same. Mm. One thing I'm very confident in, I'm not a lot of things, but I'm very, very confident in my taste. Yeah. And I know that I have taste for me. You yeah. know, it may not be good taste. It may not be bad taste, but it's my taste. And, you know, I will paint my living room walls metallic silver. But I think a lot of people got afraid to have their own taste. Mm. Because if you watch, like I can promise you that if you watch... If if you watch a particular designer, either on a TV show, in a shelter magazine, whatever, they may be doing, you know, white, black, and gray. Yeah. But that's very possibly not what their own house looks like because they're right. very confident in their own taste. Yeah. And I think that it became a selling tool. Like, yeah. you know, you need, I'm not picking on this person, but you need chiplap walls and black and white, an American yeah. farmhouse. Yeah. And, you know, if that's your look, it's a great look. Totally. But if you just copy it because it's somebody else's look, that's where we get into the problem. Yeah. You know, you need to find your own look. And I think I think you're right. I think what we used to kind of celebrate sort of the quirkiness of the house and sort of personal style. And then we kind of got away from that. We kind of got to, you know, mass, you know, TJ Maxx, Home Goods. Yeah. Because we didn't know what to do. And we knew that, you know, so-and-so had good taste. So we were just going to copy theirs rather than find our own. 
Yeah. Fortunately, I think we're starting to see the shift back. Yeah. Because uh, the perfect example for it is Ben and Aaron Napier. Yeah. You know, their houses don't look cookie cutter. You know, and who doesn't love them? Yeah. But I've started also seeing it in shelter mags. You know, you're starting to see wallpaper pop back up. And, you know, wallpaper is the surest sign you have individual taste because it's a nightmare to take down. So if you don't love it, you won't put it on the walls. Yeah. I think it's it's sort of a maybe a culture shift, you know, as the Gen Z and et cetera are starting to move into like the stage where they're buying their house. You know, they're a little more willing to have their own look. Totally. I think there's also a piece of it, and maybe this was a financial crash thing from, you know, 08, 09, but like resale value was always a big focus for people. And I think that was just like, it's twofold. Like if you're not selling your house now, why do you care about it? Like you've got to live in it for five or 10 or 20 years, like whatever it is, focus on, on being comfortable now. That That's kind of always been one thing. But I don't even know that you could quantify if your living room is metallic silver or whatever. You know, if you do something super custom, does that knock 5000 off the value of your house? Does it knock 10000 Does it add 20000 I have no idea. And I don't think like the actual conditions when you go to sell your house are so dependent on so many other things that I honestly don't know that that really matters at the end of the day. Yeah, it's funny. I've heard so many people say resale value. Yeah. I have a friend who bought like the deal of a lifetime house. Like, honestly, I mean, she stole it. Yeah. You know, it was just the perfect situation. And it was the perfect house for her, right? She bought it. It was a beautiful house and it was just beautifully maintained. And the first thing she said was, well, I'm going to paint everything gray because, you know, it'll help the resale value. (laughs) And I said, your resale value is so good. Yeah. I mean, you're at a point where you can paint everything like black. Yeah. This wall, ceiling, floor, and you still have killer resale. Plus, she just moved in. Yeah, she just moved in, and that's what she was going to do. And I was just, oh my gosh, no. Like, you're never leaving this because you're never going to get this deal again. Yeah. Like, you can never move. Right. Because you got the deal of a lifetime. You know, it's funny that people think about like resale value or what the neighbors think. And I think you're right. Like, I'm not going to sell my house. I mean, I've said that, you know, I mean, when you when you finally put the epitaph about the punch bowl, yeah. they're going to have drug me out of that house because I'm <laughs> never leaving. You know, I got it exact. I mean, I just got it like I want it. Why would I leave? Yeah. You know, and I think, well, who cares? And the other thing about resale value, I mean, honestly, if for some reason, like tomorrow I found out I was moving. Yeah. I probably would paint everything back. That's true. I mean, I probably wouldn't try to leave it metallic silver, but that's the other, that's the great thing is, you know, you can customize this house. And as long as it's not extreme makeover where, you know, you built a ship in the backyard, yeah, you can just fix it. Right. If you can quantify that, if you can say it would increase the home value $10,000, if you tore out, you know, one thing that's not in the book, but I'll tell you this dining room that we turned into a den my partner's a music critic, and he has a CD collection that's probably in, the, I mean, it's way into the thousands. Sure, yeah. And he loves them. Like, he still loves them. You know, I mean, he streams music, but he still likes the experience of the CD, and he still buys them. Totally, yeah. So one wall in that den is built as library shelves, but it's built to hold CDs. So the shelves are the perfect size, floor to ceiling. Yeah. You know, the wall's 18 feet long and 12 feet tall. So it's a wow. big room. It's CDs floor to ceiling. Yeah. You know, it's it was a very specific design decision because he wanted to look at them. Yeah. I said, okay, let's turn them into a feature. Like, let's just do the whole wall. 
and just kind of make this impression. And, you know, we probably would take those out yeah. because other people would probably look at them and think, well, what am I going to do with them? Right. You know, but that's the other thing. It wasn't that expensive to put in. It's not that expensive to take out. But, you know, we've lived there 15 years, Yeah. you know, and we still like them. Yeah. Like we still like our house. So even if we have to take it out, we've used it for 15 years, you know? Right. I want to ask you about uh, some of the other stuff you talk about in the book, specifically around some of the tools that you talk about. Because when I think about dusting, I think I need to buy Swiffers and I need to keep buying them and buying them and buying them. And you talk about kind of old fashioned things like a feather duster or wool duster, like just to me, even learning that I think it was the lanolin, right? In the, in the wool, yeah. like it grabs the dust. That was awesome. Like I had no idea that. And now I want to get some of those things instead of just being stuck on the consumption train of always having to buy, you know, new dusting sheets. Right. Like where do you go for high quality cleaning tools, whether it's brushes or dusters or brooms, like, is that something that you can get at a discount store like a Target, or do you have to go somewhere specialty if you want them to last? I guess I should say. Well, like wool dusters, you can get like at the hardware store. Uh huh. You know, they're pretty easy to find. Feather dusters, at that point, I mean, you're going to, well, I mean, you'd have to go to like Martha Stewart's hardware store to <laughs> yeah. find a feather duster, but they're not as common. But I mean, they're out there, you know. And what's great is they're becoming more common because people are starting to want to invest in tools. I'm starting to see, you know, all of those things pop up now, which I love. Yeah. You know, I'm going in more stores and seeing higher quality tools. I think you just sort of know, like when you pick it up and you hold it, you just kind of know, you know, wool dusters are seven or eight dollars. You know, and they'll last you several years if you take care of them. Feather dusters, you know, they're going to be a little bit more, but they're also going to last a lifetime. Yeah. So like those tools and then. Other tools, you know, that's kind of a great thing about YouTube. You know, you can see people on YouTube using these fabulous tools. And if it seems to be a tool that you want, you know, you should go get it. I One of the things I talk about in the book, speaking of tools, was deciding to buy one tool system where all the batteries matched. Yep. And I'm sure that's very familiar to you from the commercial trade. Sure. Because, you know, I mean, contractors have known this forever. Yeah. But they've only recently done it for me. And so... The way I decided on which ones I were gonna, was going to get is I went to YouTube and watched people use all the different <laughs> ones. Yeah. And I think like if you – I haven't done it, but I'll bet if you type in Feather Duster on YouTube, you can probably find a bunch of different people using them. There's probably ASMR people using Feather Dusters. <laughs> yeah, But, totally. you know, you can find people using Feather Dusters and you can find the one that you want. Yeah. You know, that's another – that's a fun use of technology is, you know, seeing the other side. So I think, you know, the hardware store is going to have better tools than – and I don't want to say better tools than Target because I live in Minneapolis and I can't bash Target. Sure. You know, Target is just a different thing. But, you know, the hardware store is probably going to give you a slightly better tool because they're more in, like, commercial. You know, I mean, if you think of Lowe's or Home Depot or Menards or whatever, that's more commercial grade. And so the tool is probably going to be a little bit better. Yeah. But then the other thing is, you know, it can be a cheap tool. Like, a paintbrush is a great thing to dust your lampshades. And, you know, mm. that can be 99 cents. Yeah. I've started saving old toothbrushes and like I use that for cleaning all the yeah. time. Um, you also focus a lot in the book, and I think this gets back to the sustainability stuff that we were talking about earlier, on decorating primarily, I think, with vintage things, you know, finding vintage trunks or vintage dishware or whatever it is at thrift stores, at uh, rummage sales, at things like that. 
I feel like for a lot of people that can be intimidating too. Like, I'm just curious for you, sort of your vintage <laughs> journey, I guess. Like, how did you get turned on to vintage and and what what was it that helped you get comfortable using vintage things? Well, I grew up surrounded by antiques. My parents both loved antiques and collected antiques. So, you know, that started out. When I was a kid, we used to go to antique stores. Like, every vacation, we would end up in antique stores. Yeah. So that just seemed like, you know, a thing to me. When I got older, you know, you get your first apartment and you, you know, I mean, I wanted my first apartment to look phenomenal, even though, you know, I'm a college kid. Yeah. And that really isn't, you know, one of my first purchases would was a wooden beaded chandelier, which is the most practical thing that one could ever buy. I still have it, though. But, you know, I think I just started buying those things and then started working into them. I've now come to realize that the quality is so high yeah. that, like, if I needed a new sofa, like if, you know, something came up and I needed a new sofa, I would buy a vintage one. Yeah. And have it reupholstered because the quality is so high. Yeah. And then the other part, the other great thing about vintage, which I love, and I think a lot of people love, even if they want to admit it, is you can have something unique. Mm. You know, you find, you know, that, that sofa and none of your friends all have one because, you know, it was vintage or antique. And, you know, I kind of love that. And then you also don't have to be afraid. Like if you want a hot pink velvet sofa, yeah. new, that would probably be thousands, like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars because it would be so tough to find. But you could go to a thrift store and buy a sofa for $100 and take it to an upholsterer or even better, your continuing ed class will have an upholstery class and you can learn to do it yourself. Yeah. And it's so much fun yeah. to go to continuing ed to learn to do upholstery. It's, I mean, I did it with a friend and it was one of the most fun, like two months we ever had. But, you know, you can have a hot pink velvet sofa, you know, for a few hundred dollars yeah. if that's like, you know, what you've always wanted. And really, now that I think about it, I kind of want one. <laughs> there is kind of a there's a frustration that can come from that, too, though, of like if you have a thing in your head, it's a hunt, I guess, as opposed to. And I think maybe this goes back to kind of where we are now with with the Internet and things that like we're so used to just searching for the most random thing on Amazon and having it on our doorstep the next day that we're not as used to that kind of that hunt anymore of just, okay, it might take me three years to find the right sofa. And as you say, it might be the right shape, but not the right upholstery or, you know, whatever it is like, but when you find it, it's, it's so gratifying. And you write about that in the book, I think, right? I love the hunt. So, I mean, I'm not the person to say, the hunt is a, is that's a downside to me. That's the ultimate upside, you know, that you just look and, and I mean, like we didn't have chairs in our living room for two years because I knew what I wanted yeah, and I just wasn't willing to buy anything. I, we had two folding chairs <laughs> from our deck and our living room because, because we needed two chairs in there because otherwise they wouldn't visit. Yeah. But I waited. I love the hunt, yeah. you know, and I think to me, that's really fun so I guess, you know, I'm not the person to ask, like, it, is that a downside? You know, I think I think of things to hunt for. Yeah. You know, I think now I'm probably the person who's like, you know, I want a computer stand from the 17th century. And I think <laughs> I dream this stuff up just so I have something to hunt for. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just because it's just so satisfying. Yeah. And you find other stuff on the way there. Like, you go hunting for the one thing and then you find something you didn't even know you needed and, you know. 
And the great thing is because it's it's vintage and it's used, it's not consuming new things to make. Like, it's not it, there's not the same guilt, I guess, in buying something used because it's already been manufactured. It's there anyways. You know, you're giving it new life. Right. You find the things along the way. Plus, it kind of turns antique stores into museums. Mm. You know, maybe you don't need, you know, whatever that thing is, like, you know, a hairstyling station from the 1920s, which I just saw in an antique store. It was fascinating. <laughs> it was amazing. Like, it must have done, like, perms, but with electricity. Huh. It was this crazy-looking, sort of octopus-looking concoction. But it was amazing to get to see it. And I'm glad I saw it. Yeah. You know, I think that's the other fun thing about antique stores, you know, and estate sales. Like, what did somebody else collect? Like... You know, someday that guy's, you know, hot sauce bottles, somebody's going to be like, wow, kooky. Yeah. And I just talked to a guy yesterday who had matchbooks from gay bars in San Francisco in the 70s. Wow. And he had them framed. Yeah. And they were amazing. Yeah. You know, how fun is that? Yeah. And it becomes a historic relic at that point, too. Yeah. It's just, you know, but it's so fun. So I think that's part of the fun of the hunt is you know, the serendipity of things along the way that you just see that maybe you don't need or you don't want, but it's so fun to get to see them. Yeah, totally. Um, I want to end this kind of on something that has been threaded throughout this conversation, and it's where you end the book as well, and that's on this notion of sustainability. And I mean, you talk pretty bluntly about just your love of nature, the love of where you grew up in Kentucky, the love of where you are now in Minnesota. And sort of all these places around us and really directly tying the consumption of things and sort of the choices we make, even in just the cleaning products in our house, like that that has an effect right downstream, literally, you know, on the places that we love to go and, and hike or, you know, bike or whatever on the weekends. Why was that an important thing for you to to include in this? And it, it, you, I mean, you talked at the beginning about kind of this is a, a newer space for you. Like, why was it important to bring other people along on that journey, I guess? Okay, first of all, it's a great question. <laughs> Second of all, I hadn't really planned for it. You know, it's. I mean, I live like, I grew up in Eastern Kentucky, which I think is one of the most beautiful places on the planet. Yeah. And I live in Minnesota, which is, you know, incredibly beautiful as well. And you know, I've traveled so much and I see so many places that are just so kind of magnificent. Part of what makes them magnificent is, you know, the river and the trees and the, you know, the birds and of course animals, because I will pet literally anything. You know, if I ever win the lottery, all I ever really want to do is get a farm where every animal can live. Mm. You'll know I've won the lottery because you'll see me with an elephant. <laughs> I'll be like, this is my elephant or my house cow or whatever. And so, you know, the thing is, I mean, we have to start preserving those things, you know? I mean, extinction is devastating, and so that bothers me. But then it also just bothers me that, you know, we're finding out the health effects of things we did 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, and vinegar's time-tested. Like, we've tested vinegar for hundreds of years, and we know it's safe. Yeah. We know hydrogen peroxide is safe. You know, we relatively know that vodka's, you know, safe-ish, as long as it's used to clean, I'm not going to say if it's safe or not for anything else, but we know those things are safe. And, you know, I think of my niece and nephew and my nephews, you know, and what am I leaving to them? I mean, it's kind of legacy. Yeah. You know, there's the responsibility to, you know, the elephants and the house cows 
and all those things. But there's also the responsibility to legacy. And, you know, how tragic would it be if in three generations, you know, little Patrick that comes along in 2172 can't go play in the woods, you know, yeah. because there are none. Or he can't, you know, go play in the creek. And those things, I mean, because that's what formed who I am. It's funny. It it formed me that, you know, I went to New York City when I was eight year, or 10 years old. And it formed me that, you know, I went to Colonial Williamsburg many times as a child. But it also formed me that I played in the creek and I played in the woods. And, you know, I discovered a million uses for moss. And I grew, I mean, I had my own flower garden when I was six years old. You know, those things formed me too. And... As I'm, I think there again, as I'm getting older, I'm starting to think more about legacy. And, you know, I want that for the, I want that for the Patrick in 2172. Yeah. You know, so I thought of that, but then I also thought of myself. I mean, selfishly, you know, am I going to be the 80 year old that's riddled with all sorts of illness because I've just used every chemical known to man? Or am I going to be going to be one of those people who's 103 and, you know, still biking? Yeah. Or biking. I shouldn't say still biking. I don't do it now, but maybe I will when I'm 103, you know, yeah. and, you know, and I've started thinking about, I mean, I've started thinking about both sides of that coin. Like, what am I leaving behind? And, you know, the idea of leave no trace, because I, I mean, the, tra the trace I want to leave is that people use a punch bowl to, you know, wash their cashmere sweaters, not, you know, that I've wrecked the earth. Yeah. You know, so... I think that, and I think that a lot of people want to make that decision. I mean, I think if you ask the majority of the population, would you rather use something chemical-laden or something natural? They would tell you something natural, but for whatever reason, they don't do it. And I think a biggest, I think a, one of the big things is just they don't know how. Yeah. You know, so I hope that, you know, when people listen to how, or people read House Love or listen to House Love or listen to this podcast and we're us talking about house love, you know, they get the idea that you create the house for people that you love because, you know, love is kind of this overarching thing, but you love people, you love your house, but you love the earth and you love sort of the next generations because that's kind of it. And they, that out the other thing that they learn is that sustainability can be easy because you started this conversation with laundry love. It made your laundry processes easier yeah. So I hope that house love makes your house processes easier, but it also makes the sense of sustainability a little easier. All right, there we go. Patrick Richardson. I got to say, since reading the book, I have started going through and cleaning even more. Process started when I was reading Sarah Suzanka's book, continued with Kim John Payne. And now here I am just really, really cleaning and deep cleaning my house, trying to get things looking better, feeling better trying to declutter, have less stuff, and bring less stuff into here. I mean, that's what it's all about. We just went through Christmas, and uh, my wife and I gave each other a couple of vintage dinner plates, and that was it. My parents bought us a, an RV membership. Like, I think I grew up in a time where stuff was a replacement for love and intimacy and things like that, and that was part of a marketing message that we were all fed through our childhoods, and I think the tide is turning against that. I think people nowadays are realizing that overconsumption is not going to solve our problems and that doing more with less, cleaning with vinegar, things like that are really 
what it means to be human. So go check out Patrick's book, House Love, and think about ways that you can live smarter and healthier. Don't forget heathrasala.com slash newsletter. If you want to sign up for newsletter issues, I have new issues twice a week. Plus, you'll get alerted to every new podcast episode. And if you'd like to be a paying member, you'll help support the podcast and the newsletter, which I, of course, really appreciate. I'm at Heath Rosella on social media. Give me a follow over there as well. Let's chat. And again, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2024. I look forward to talking to you again soon. See you in two weeks. Stay safe.